Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Welcome to episode eight of This Is Our Effing Podcast, a Red Sox show with your co-hosts, Sean McAdam and Steve Lyons. Welcome to another episode. Thanks for listening. Thanks for checking us out. We ask, as we usually do, that you rate and review the show on whatever platform you get the uh, podcast on. And please let your Red Sox friends and fans know about the show's existence and recommend it if you would be so kind. Uh, Steve, good afternoon. And uh, how are you today? Um, excellent. Another week goes by and uh, you know, the Red Sox still playing pretty good baseball for the most part. Yeah, um, a little disappointing, I suppose, over the weekend to drop two out of three to a, a, a pretty mediocre Kansas City team that had lost uh, 11 and 12 before that series. The Royals get two out of three from the Sox at Kauffman Stadium over the weekend. Red Sox really did themselves no favors on Sunday afternoon with a sloppy game, a couple of big defensive letdowns that led to the loss. But after their second day off, scheduled day off in the span of four, which really broke up that string where they had played 17 days in a row, all against pretty good teams. They now have had the benefit of a couple of days rest and perhaps they're going to need it because this is a very demanding portion of the schedule coming up in this week. The Red Sox, uh, as we record this, Steve, are set to begin a three-game series at Tropicana Field against Tampa Bay Rays, the team that is closest to the Red Sox in the standings being just a half game out. Uh, the Rays themselves are scuffling a little. They have lost six straight, uh, had a rough road trip that ended in Seattle with yet another sweep. In fact, they have not won a game since Tyler Glasnow's uh, elbow injury was made public and the diagnosis for a long layoff, if not eventually Tommy John surgery, but still a, a team to be reckoned with, obviously. And then the Red Sox followed that up uh, by coming home and hosting the Yankees for their first visit to Boston uh, in 2021. It, it really is amazing. And I know this is kind of the, the vagaries of the major league schedule, and you could always sort of pinpoint a weird time. But we're in late June, Steve, and the Red Sox have played more games against the Atlanta Braves than they have against either the Rays or the Yankees. That just doesn't, that doesn't seem right. Yeah, I mean, it's a scheduling snafu, really. But what it does set up is uh, for some pretty exciting baseball down the stretch because you know you're going to have to play both of those teams quite a bit in the second half of the season. And, you know, if if you want to call yourselves the champions of the division, you got to beat up on the division. And, and, you know, we talked a little bit, I think, last week about how the schedule falls out and how it can really benefit you. Uh, as a team by the teams you're playing at the time. Sometimes you bump into a team, they're so hot, you can't get them out. Sometimes you bump into a team on the schedule who can't get out of their own way. I mean, Tampa Bay is one of those teams right now. You're talking about a team that won, what, 16 out of 17 earlier in the season, now six in a row. I think they've been walked off about four of those six losses. So they have, you know, turned around and scuffled a little bit. I, I think any team right now that you talk about you can say they have some oddities to them not only the team but the schedule and the way things have played out 
so far in this season. When you talk about the Red Sox, they go through that 17-game stretch where they have zero days off. They're playing against pretty darn good competition, and they play really, really well. And then you go to Kansas City and you drop two to a team that, again, can't get out of their own way. That's not a team that you should be losing games to. And and the defense kind of rears its ugly head again. That That is going to be, I still think, a continuing problem uh, with this team throughout the season. Uh, because it's a very difficult thing to address without personnel change. You know, if you have a second baseman and he's kicking the ball around, you know, his extra work at second base at two o'clock in the afternoon is great. But if you're a major league player, you kind of are who you are. The only way to make it a better second base situation is to get a different second baseman. (laughs) Yeah. I I mean, I I think that's a reference to uh, Christian Arroyo who had kind of a ball explode at his feet and go off his foot and roll into all territory and under the park for a ground rule double on a play that should have been made. I would say that Arroyo has been um, otherwise excellent at second base. And I, I would look at that as more of an outlier uh, for him. But I think the other two, uh, you know, there was a misplay by Bobby Dahlbeck that led directly to the first run of the game uh, for the Royals and Dahlbeck has made six errors. I mean, it, it, it's hard sometimes to evaluate first base play because I think in general for a guy who is not a natural first baseman who drafted as a third baseman and made that transition across the diamond that it, in some ways Dahlbeck has been uh, pretty good. Uh, I think he's done a nice job in picking throws out of the dirt. That's a skill that, you know, I guess a little bit uh, can be replicated from his time at third base when you're talking about, you know, in between hops over there and hot smashes at the third corner. But let's face it, his range is fairly limited over there and he doesn't get to some balls that he should. Um, and, you know, there, there are, I, I think the infield, you know, I, I think most Red Sox fans would say, you don't worry too much about the outfield. Renfro has been heard in right field, not just with, the ability to cover ground up there, but his arm has played extremely well. He's got eight or nine outfield assists. He's cut down a couple of runners at the plate. Uh, Verdugo is a plus defender no matter where you put him. He's played well in left where he's played most of the time. And Kike Hernandez has been uh, at least above average in center. So the only issue in the outfield are, are the days in which uh, they put J.D. Martinez out there, and he's certainly a sub-average defender. But in general... Outfield defense has been good. Not the same situation in the infield. Um, you know, Bogart's some limited range. Dahlbeck we've talked about. And even though Devers is now kind of an even break-even zero on defensive runs saved. In other words, he's not a liability, even if he's not saving runs. Uh, the infield is the area to me they have to worry about defensively. Yeah, no question about it. And things have changed a little bit, you know, the Red Sox are much less of a ground ball pitching type of a team. So it used to be, Hey, if you got a bunch of sinker ball pitchers, you better have a bunch of guys in the infield that can catch a ground ball. And, you know, all those things that you just talked about with Dahlbeck that, you know, his range at first base, which kind of amazes me if they thought that he was going to have good range at third base, because your range doesn't change very much regardless of the position you play, but you're hundred percent correct about changing positions I mean, obviously, if, 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 if I lost my glove, I, I would have never played in the big leagues. It's the only reason that kept me around. But people think, oh, yeah, go stick him at first base. In fact, the Red Sox organization did that with Brock Holt. 
You know, he'd never played first base in his life. He got a few ground balls over there one morning and was playing there that afternoon one time. It's not as easy as a as good first baseman make it look. You know, oh, just catch the ball. It's no big deal. The footwork that it takes over there and the, you know, the timing that you have to try to figure out when the ball's hit and how far away from the base can you actually play and still get there in time to make sure that the infielder have a, has a target to throw at when you're over there. Um, you know, there's so many more aspects that come into it, holding runners on, you know, turning double plays, you know, you're playing on the opposite side of the field that, than you're used to. Um, even the ball comes at you in a different manner. The ball's spinning the other direction. It, it bounces differently. Um, and, and so just to say, ah, we'll play him at first. I mean, I, I kind of agree with you. I think overall he's done a pretty darn good job for a guy who's not used to being over there, but he has to continue to improve. Um, let's um, circle back a little bit to the, the two series that we uh, started talking about, the three games in a field that begin Tuesday night and then hosting the Yankees for the first time at Fenway this year. It really is remarkable, despite their current game losing streak, that the Rays have um, are where they are, frankly. You know, if you look at that rotation now, uh, the only recognizable name in that rotation is uh, – guy who's the oldest starter starting pitcher in the big leagues rich hill who has after a rough first few weeks of the season has really rebounded and been uniformly excellent for the rays but to think about charlie morton leaving via free agency now being part of the trade in san diego and now glass now uh sidelined with that elbow injury and still the rays keep plugging along it's like you know i i wrote this today steve it's kind of like they're they're the uh, the villain in the slasher movie who you know just can't be killed off. You can chop off an arm or or you know stab him in the back, and he keeps coming after you. That that's kind of where the where the Rays are. They they seemingly have this bottomless pit of talent in their minor league system. No matter who they lose, they just plug in some prospect who uh, you know who continues to help them out. Yeah, I mean, and if you're the Red Sox in that movie, you're saying, don't go into that dark room, <laughs> turn the light on. <laughs> because, I mean, it has been amazing. And it's and it really goes back from a foundation of scouting from years ago, really. I mean, you go back 10 years, really. Uh, they have made some pretty deft trades. There's no question about that. The Archer deal that we had talked about where they got Glassnow Meadows um, was, you know, a pretty amazing deal for them. But that is doing their research, doing their homework, scouting players, understanding the type of player that's going to fit into their system and work, especially without being able to spend very much money. And that's the most impressive thing. It, you know, it seems to me you should be able to put together a pretty good baseball team. You've got, you know, 240 million to spend. And, um, you know, sometimes you can fool yourself and overspend on a guy who doesn't pan out. And then it's a little bit more difficult, but when you continually have to work within a budget and keep throwing out, top-notch major league talent uh, that become household names after a couple seasons wearing a Tampa Bay uniform from a guy you'd never even heard of before. To me, all comes down to how well they evaluate talent uh, at, at a young age, at when these players are young and when they're being drafted. Um, because like we said, they have made some good deals over time, but they that's not how they've built their franchise. It is, it, it is about drafting and signing and scouting and development that that's how a small market team with a very limited payroll has to do it. <clears throat> they, they can't be players in free agency. 
you know, they decided that 15 million was too expensive for Charlie Morton. They were worried that Snell was getting closer and closer to free agency and they had to move them to capitalize on the years of controlled meaning and get some young players back uh, from San Diego. So they're constantly having to reinvent themselves and yet they, they, they managed to do it. And, and uh, in this series, Red Sox fans will get a look at the guy who has been the top prospect in Major League Baseball for the last two years, shortstop Wander Franco, who has just, uh, you know, an incredible talent. He's been tearing it up at AAA. He'll be making his Major League debut in the series, though likely not at shortstop. They could use him at second or third, which tells a, a little bit about the depth of that organization, that you're bringing up the best minor league player in all of the game, and yet you don't have room or the ability necessarily to play him in his natural position, which leads me to ask a question. Uh, would the Red Sox, and you can talk about Franco if you'd like, Steve, but I'm, my, this has got me thinking about, you know, should the Red Sox be making a similar move to inject a little energy and life into their lineup and roster midseason by promoting one of their own top prospects in Jaron Duran. You know, I'll start with Franco, which is, it's, you know, I think it's going to be fun. I think he's the first kid in, in, in 2001 to be born in 2001 to get to the big leagues. I mean, you're talking about a child that they're bringing up here yeah. uh, to come in. But that just shows you when an organization feels you're ready to go to the big leagues, you go to the big leagues and you play. Um, it is a little strange that they're not going to play him at his natural position because you would think defensively coming into the big leagues is where he might feel the most comfortable. He's going to be a lot more nervous going to the plate, you know, because that's where everyone kind of recognizes who you are. Are you hitting the ball? Well, you know, if you clank a ball at shortstop, you know, okay, no big deal. Uh, but if you're over 20, when you come to the big leagues, people notice, um, as far as uh, Duran is, is concerned, if he's ready to come, then get him up there. You know, and obviously the Rays aren't worried about the age of a player. They're worried about whether or not they think he can handle being in the big leagues. And some of these young players have been showing that they can do it at a much younger age than when I played the game. And they come up with a lot more flair, a lot more confidence, a lot more, uh, you know, um, just – assuredness in their abilities and they feel like they belong from day one. And that, that, to me, that's a good thing. Yeah, I mean, you, you look around the game and to see the number of five tool standout players who are, you know, even after having established themselves a bit, still under 23 years old, guys like Ronald Acuna Jr. who the Red Sox saw a couple of times in Atlanta last week, Juan Soto with the nationals, uh, you know, Fernando Tatis Jr. Uh, guys with uh, the Chicago White Sox that have come up and made um, Luis Robert, uh, uh, you know, other guys that have had that quick uh, impression at a very young age, barely legal drinking age, and they're coming up and impacting tenant races. You know, you and I have talked a lot about the Red Sox inability to solve that leadoff uh, spot, whether it be Hernandez or Marwin Gonzalez or Christian Arroyo, nobody has claimed that spot. Maybe even if the Red Sox do in the next couple of weeks, bring up Darren Duran. I wonder whether they would view putting him in that leadoff spot as too much of a, you know, there's going to be enough spotlight on him when he comes up after all. 
no matter when, uh, in a market like Boston, particularly where the Red Sox are good, it's all eyes on on the team, and he's going to be under the, the spotlight no matter where he is. I wonder if they would be wary of plugging him into that top spot in the lineup, figuring that that's one more thing that he doesn't have to, to you know, that he doesn't need to deal with as he makes his debut. You know, I mean, the organization and Alex Cora are both very cautious in that regard. Uh, they do look to plug guys in and in the place where they feel like they could have the most success or where they could protect a player in a lineup at times. I don't necessarily agree with the philosophy just based on what I said just earlier. If you're ready to play or if they believe you're ready to play and they want you to play in the big leagues and you're in the lineup, what difference does it make? If he is, if he's been leading off and that's where he's most comfortable hitting, put him in that spot when you bring him up to the big leagues, especially when you've been having a little trouble in that spot. Um, I just, you know, I, I, I've always kind of disagreed with the philosophy that you can ruin a guy's confidence or you can, you know, really um, derail his career. If you certainly can, if you bring him up too quick, if it, the guy's just not ready to play, I mean, and he gets buried. But if, if you've made the determination that this kid can play in the big leagues, then let him play in the big leagues, let him do what he's meant to do. And, you know, I, I always kind of said that if you can, I never have liked the word confidence, even though I just used it. Um, I always feel like if you can ruin a guy's confidence, then I don't want him as a teammate. I, you know, you might, you might knock him down a peg or two, or you could lose your swagger a little bit because you're scuffling. But if you don't wake up as a player every day thinking you're going to go three for four today, then I don't want to play with you. Even if you're in, in an 0 for 25, you got to wake up the next day saying, today's the day. I'm going to do it today. And, and, and show up at the ballpark the same way you always do. If you're a guy that can get your tail knocked between your legs, then go play for someone else. And, and I just don't think Duran's that kind of a kid. I think he's going to come up. He, he may scuffle. A lot of players do. But I also think that he's, he's, he's shown the signs that he's talented enough where he'll go through all of it. Remember Bogarts a couple seasons ago? He went yeah. like six for 100. Yep. Even I was saying – they should sit him down or send him back to AAA for a few weeks just to let him breathe. And he eventually came through it. That was a really bad scuffling time for him, but look at him now. Right. And you know, it's not as if you can point to any economic reasons for not promoting Duran at this point. We are long past uh, the time in April by which he would have had a full year of service. time. You only need, uh, whatever, two weeks of the season to pass, 15 days, I think it is, uh, to deny a player a full year of service. So we're, we're well past that. It's not like they're burning a full year of service time because we're almost halfway through the season. And even on the arbitration scale, not that a, a, mark, a, a Red Sox team that is a top market team should be worried about having to pay or deal with an extra year of arbitration down the road but we are now past the super two stage once you get past the middle of June. So um, yeah. th there are no economic issues that would preclude them from bringing it up. It just seems like the Red Sox want to wait a little while, but you wonder if just like Franco is going to deliver a, a, a shot of adrenaline to that raised roster at a time when maybe the guys are, are worn down a little bit. I think the same could be true for Grant. He could inject some life into the Red Sox in the middle of the summer 
Um, so we'll see where that goes. But let's move on to a couple of national issues, Steve. Uh, we began the uh, TSA inspections on the field of pitchers on Monday. That was the first day that Major League Baseball really stepped up its uh, in uh, its enhanced in, uh, 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 crackdown on foreign substances. We saw Jacob DeGrom cheapishly. Uh, turn his belt buckle over, turn his hat over to the umpires as he came off the field after the first or second inning. Saw a video of Joe Kelly doing it with, with the Dodgers. Um, it, it went smoothly. Nobody got caught on the first day. But it is kind of a, an awkward look for Major League Baseball to have these modified strip searches going on at the end of innings pitchers. And it's a weird thing. I don't know if we're ever going to get used. Yeah, I mean, guys will just figure out different ways to, you know, hide it, I suppose, if they still want to use it. Uh, this is a way bigger deal than I thought it was going to be, um, especially when you listen to the comments of the players. And you listen to a guy like Bauer talk about, work with us, work with us. You know, maybe we could come to a, an agreement somewhere. I know it's illegal, but, you know, hey, uh, you know, this has been going on for a long time. You're talking about one of the best pitchers in the game almost saying, hey, this thing, this ain't going to work because everyone's doing it and uh, you need to figure out a better way than just coming out and saying, guess what? You can't do it anymore. Um, so I, you know, I just didn't think it was going to be as big an issue as it's becoming. And you know, I think I saw something on Twitter. Uh, someone had said, you know, checking DeGrom, you know, to see if he's got a substance is like asking the good Lord if he's got loaves and fishes up his sleeve. You know, it's like, come on, how do you stop the best pitcher in the game, you know, from going out there and doing what he does? But, uh, you know, we'll we'll see what happens, you know, the first time someone actually gets caught. Yeah, I think that's going to be fascinating. Uh, you know, there'll be the automatic ejection and the 10 game suspension. But uh, you wonder how other players and, and a manager is going to react to that the first time a guy is thrown out of the game um who knows i i think there's a lot we don't know and and it's going to be fascinating to see how this unfolds over the next couple of weeks and finally uh we had some history made uh in san diego with the padre starter you darvish becoming the fastest pitcher ever to get to 1500 career strikeouts it took him 197 games to get to that level. And Steve, this is a, uh, you know, a, a, uh, a microcosm of how the game has changed. He did it nine games faster than Randy Johnson did, who needed 206 games to get to 1,500 strikeouts. Uh, no dismissal or no disrespect meant to you, Darvish. He's been a pretty good pitcher since coming over from Japan. But the fact that, you know, a pretty good starter is now getting to a milestone faster than arguably the greatest strikeout pitcher in the history of the game tells us a little bit about where we are in 2021. Yeah, yeah. faster than Nolan Ryan, faster than Clemens. Yeah, yeah Pedro, and you're right. you it, it. it is all about the strikeout and the home run. So, uh, you know, guys are striking out at record paces. We know that. And so, obviously, the pitchers are going to rack up the strikeouts. But I think... It, for me, as an international issue, it, it, it's interesting to see that, you know, we see guys come over 
um, foreign players come over. And most of them don't have a major impact. You Darvish certainly is a guy who has, and uh, I think it's pretty impressive. And then on, on the flip side of that, as a hitter, you know, Ichiro, who, you know, you could argue has more hits than anybody in the history of the game. If you, if you tally up all the hits he had in right. Japan when he played there. Um, so I think it's kind of impressive when you do see a guy like Darvish come over and have huge success, guy like Ichiro, the same situation. Um, you know, they come over from a foreign country where, where it's universally known that the grade of baseball that they play there isn't as good. And yet you have some guys that can come over and have superstardom in, in the best baseball league that there is. Yeah, and, and in Japan, where the strikeout is not nearly as prevalent, or at least it's not been historically, it's about, you know, pitching to contact, getting rough contact, staying out of the middle of the plate. Uh, strikeouts do not accumulate in Japan the way they do in North America and in Major League Baseball. And yet, somehow, Garbage has been able to make that transition and be a dominant starter here in Major League Baseball uh, now with his what fourth team, I think, um, with the Padres. But it, it is a snapshot of how much the game has changed and how much the strikeout has become so much more prevalent in the game uh, in 2021 than it was even you know five or ten years ago that somebody, a late-arriving guy uh, to the big leagues, uh, sets a record that had been held by arguably – you know, one of the three or four most dominant pitchers ever to play the game. So that's kind of where we are. Uh, that'll wrap up episode eight for this is our effing podcast, a Red Sox show with your co-host Sean McAdam and Steve Lyons. Again, we ask that you rate and review the podcast. Uh, tell your friends about it and spread the word. If you would, we appreciate it. We'll be back with you next week. Steve, look forward to it. I will as well. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.